Chapter 1 of Countess Erika's Apprenticeship. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Vinaymala. Countess Erika's Apprenticeship by Ossip Shubin. Translated by Annie Slee Wister. Chapter 1. Baron von Stranschiski reclined upon a lounge in his smoking room, recovering from the last pecuniary calamity which he had brought upon himself. The fact was, he had built a sugar factory in a tract of country where the nearest approach to a sugar beet that could be found was a carrot on a manure heap, and his enterprise had been followed by the natural result. He bore his misfortune with exemplary fortitude and beguiled the time with the sentimental novel upon the cover of which was portrayed a lady wringing her hands in presence of a military man drinking champagne. At times he wept over this fiction, at others he dozed over it and was at peace. This he called submitting with dignity to the mysterious decrees of destiny and he looked upon himself as a martyr. His wife was not at home. Whilst he reposed thus in melancholy self-admiration, she was devoting herself to the humiliating occupation of visiting, in turn, one and another of her wealthy relatives, begging of them the loan of funds necessary for the furtherance of her husband's brilliant scheme. It is very sad, but tis the fault of circumstances sighed the baron when his thoughts wandered from his book to his absent wife and for a moment he would cover his eyes with his hand it was near the end of august and the esters were beginning to bloom cheerful industry reigned throughout the village the baron indeed complained of the failure of the harvest but this he did of every harvest, the proceeds of which were insufficient to cover the interest of his numerous debts. The peasantry, who by no means exacted so high a rate of profit from their meadows and pasture lands, were happy and content, and the stubble fields were already dotted with hayricks. Outside in the garden, a little girl in a worn and faded frock was playing funeral. She was interring her canary, which she had found dead in its cage. She was very sad. The bird had been her best friend. No one paid her any attention. Her mother was away, and the Englishwoman, whose duty it was to superintend her education, was just now occupied in company with the bailiff an ambitious young man desirous of improving his knowledge of languages in studying the working of a new mowing machine. From time to time the child glanced through the open door of the principal entrance to the castle into a rather bare hall, its floor paved with red tiles and its high vaulted walls whitewashed and adorned with stag's horns of all sizes. The Baron von Strensky had bought these last in one lot at an auction, but he had long cherished the conviction that they all came from his forest. He had a decided taste for fine, high-sounding expressions, always designating his wood as his forest, his estate as his domain, and his garden as his park. A charwoman 
with a flat red perspiring face and a knot of thin bristling hair at the back of her head from which her yellow cotton kerchief had slipped down upon her neck was shuffling upon hands and knees her high kilted skirts leaving her red legs quite bare over the tiles of the hall rubbing away at the dirt and footmarks with a wisp of straw while the steam of hot soapy water rose from the wooden bucket beside her the little girl outside had just planted a row of pink asters upon the grave which she had dug with the pewter spoon and had filled up duly when the scratching of the wisp of straw suddenly ceased a young fellow was standing in the hall very young scarcely 16 and with the portfolio under his arm his garb was that of a journeyman mechanic but his bearing had in it something of distinction and his face was delicately modeled very pale with large dark eyes almost black gleaming below the brown curls of his hair the same class of countenance is frequently seen among the neapolitan boys who sell savoy oranges in rome but such eyes as this lad had are seen at most only two or three times in a lifetime the child in the garden looked with evident satisfaction at the young fellow apparently he had come into the castle through the back entrance the one used by servants and beggars the charwoman wiped her red hands upon her apron and knocked at one of the doors opening into the hall she was a newcomer and did not know that the baron von strenchski was never disturbed upon any ordinary pretext she knocked several times at last a sleepy ill-humored voice said what is it your grace a young gentleman he wants to speak to your grace with eyes but half open and the pattern of the embroidered cushion upon which he had been sleeping stamped upon his cheek the baron von strenchski came out into the hall he was of middle height his face had once been handsome but was now red and bloated with excessive good living he was slightly bald and wore thick brown side whiskers his dress was a combination of solvenliness and foppery he wore scarlet turkish slippers trotted down at heel gray trousers and a soiled dark blue smoking jacket with red facings and buttons what do you want he roared in a rage at being disturbed for so slight a cause the young fellow shrank from him murmuring in a hoarse tremulous voice the voice of a very young man growing fast and but scantily nourished i am on my way home what's that to me stenchiski thundered not without some excuse for his indignation the youth flushed scarlet shyly and awkwardly he held out his portfolio to the sleepy baron evidently it contained drawings which he would like to sell but had not the courage to show give him an arms her fun stranchiski shouted to the cook who hearing the noise had hurried into the hall then turning to the scrubbing woman who was standing beside her steaming bucket her toothless jaws wide open in dismay he went on if you ever again dare for the sake of a wretched vagabond of a house painter's apprentice to deprive me of the few moments of repose which i contrive to snatch from my wretched and tormented existence i will dismiss you on the spot 
with which he retired to his room banging to the door behind him the cook offered the lad two creatures his hand a long slender boyish hand almost transparent shook as he angrily threw the money upon the floor and departed the little girl in the garden had been watching the scene attentively her delicate frame trembled with indignation as she rose and with arms hanging at her sides and small fists clenched in a somewhat dramatic attitude fixed her eyes upon the door behind which the baron had disappeared she had very bright eyes for a child of 9 years and a very penetrating glance a glance by no means friendly to the baron thus she stood for a minute gazing at the door then put her arms akimbo frowned and reflected before long she shrugged her shoulders with an air of precocious intelligence deserted the newly made grave and hurried into the house and to the pantry the door was open she looked about her by strict orders of the baron in his wife's absence all remains of provisions were hoarded in the pantry although they were seldom of any use as a consequence of this sordid housekeeping the child found a great store of dishes and bowls filled with scraps of meat and fish stale cakes and fermenting stewed apricots it took her some time to discover what satisfied her a cold roast pheasant and some pieces of tempting almond cake left over from the last meal these she packed in a basket with the flask of wine that had been opened a tumbler knife and fork and a clean napkin she decorated the basket with pink asters and hurried out of the back door intent upon playing the part of beneficent fairy deep down in her heart there was a vein of romance which contrasted oddly with the keen good sense already gleaming in her bright childish eyes she ran until she was quite out of breath searching vainly for her handsome vagabond should she inquire of someone if a young man with a portfolio under his arm had passed along the road her heart beat she felt a little shy from a distance the warm summer breeze wafted towards her the notes of a foreign air clearly whistled and she directed her steps towards the spot whence it seemed to proceed there yes there beside the road rippled a little brook on its way to the rushing stream beyond the village a brook so narrow that a 12 year old school boy could easily have jumped across it nevertheless the baron von strenchiski had thought best to span it with a magnificent three arched stone bridge in the shade thrown by this monumental structure for the erection of which the baron had vainly hoped to be decorated by his sovereign the lad was crouching he was even paler than before and there were traces of tears on his cheeks but all the same he whistled on with forced gaiety as one does whistle when one has nothing to eat and hopes to forget his hunger the little girl felt like crying he looked up and directly at her overcome by sudden shyness she stood for a moment as if rooted to the spot then awkwardly offering her basket she stammered will you have it when he did not answer she simply set the basket down before him and in her confusion would have avoided all explanations by running away but a warm young hand detained her firmly and kindly did you come from there the lad asked pointing to the castle who sent you 
His voice was agreeable and his address that of a well-born youth. No one knows that I came, she answered in confusion. And seeing that he frowned discontentedly at this, she added hastily, by way of excuse, But if Mama had been at home, she certainly would have sent me. She never lets a beggar leave the house without giving him something to eat. At the word beggar, he turned away. Whereupon she began to cry loudly, so loudly that he had to laugh. But what are you crying for? he asked. And she replied in desperation, I am crying because you will not eat anything. Indeed, is that all you are crying for? Yes, oh, do eat something, do, she sobbed. Well, since it is to gratify you so hugely, he replied in a banting tone, but sit down beside me and help me. He looked full into her eyes with his careless merry smile, then took her tiny hand in his and pressed his full warm lips upon it twice. She was greatly pleased by this courteous homage and perhaps by the caress, for it was seldom that anything of the kind fell to her share. She had fully decided that the young fellow was no mechanic but a prince in disguise and in this exhilarating conviction she sat down upon the grass beside him and unpacked her basket. How he seemed to enjoy its contents and how white his teeth were. There were also various indications of refinement and good breeding about his manner of eating which would have given a more experienced observer than the little enthusiast beside him matter for reflection with regard to his rank in life. His portfolio lay beside him. She thrust a slender forefinger between its pasteboard covers tied together with green cotton strings and whispered gravely, May I look into it? If you would like to, he replied, with great precision, as if the matter in hand were the unveiling of a sacred relic, she untied the strings and opened the portfolio. Her eyes opened wide and an awe of enthusiastic admiration escaped her lips. A wiser critic than the little girl of nine would scarcely have accorded the sketches so much approval. They were undoubtedly stiff and unfinished. Nevertheless, no genuine lover of art would have passed them by without notice, for they indicated a high degree of talent. The hand was unskilled, but the lad had eyes to see. The little girl gazed in rapt admiration. After a while, she looked gravely up at her new friend. Her compassion converted into awe. Now I know what you are, an artist. Do you think so? The lad rejoined, flattered by the reverential tone in which the word was uttered. Meanwhile, he had finished the pheasant and was considerably less pale than before. Can you paint everything you see? She asked after a short pause. I cannot paint anything, he answered with a sort of merry discontent which, now that his hunger was satisfied, characterized his every look and movement. I cannot paint anything, he repeated with a little nod, but I try to paint everything that I like. They looked in each other's eyes. He suppressing a laugh, she in some distress. At last she blurted out, Do you not like me at all then? Shall I paint you? She nodded. What will you give me for it? 
she put her hand in her pocket and took out a very shabby portmoney a superannuated possession of her fanstanchiskis which he had given her in a moment of unwanted generosity and in which were five bright silver guilders is that enough she asked i will not take money he replied she had been guilty of another stupidity she was bitterly conscious of it and so to justify herself she put on an air of great wisdom you are a very queer artist she admonished him not to take money for your pictures no wonder you nearly starve he took the hand which held the five despised silver coins and kissed it three times i do take money for my pictures he declared but not from you i will draw your picture with all my heart for nothing no you must give me a kiss for it will you he watched her without seeming to look at her again in insinuating roguish smile hovered upon his lips a charming smile which he must have inherited from some kind light-hearted woman she was not quite sure of the rectitude of her conduct her heart throbbed almost as if she were on the verge of some compact with satin but finally if you will not do it without she said with a sigh plucking at her hands very pretty hands neglected though they were he nodded gaily all right then he made her sit down on the grass opposite him unpacked his tin color case fastened a piece of rough gray paper upon the cover of his portfolio and began she sat very still very grave her feet stretched out straight in front of her sporting herself upon both hands around them breathed the soft august air the glowing summer sunshine sparkled on the translucent waters of the little brook above which the stone bridge displayed its pompous proportions while upon the banks grew hundreds of blue forget-me-nots and yellow water lilies bloomed among the trunks of the old willows which here and there showed gaping wounds in their bark from which meadow daisies were sprouting and with the silvery willow leaves showing softly grey against the green background of the gentle ascent of the pasture land the brook murmured dreamily and from the distance came the rhythmic beat of the thresher's flails steam threshing machines were not then in general use both were mute he in the warmth of his youthful artistic enthusiasm she with expectation suddenly the shrill tinkle of a bell broke the quiet that is the dinner bell the little girl exclaimed springing up with an impatient shrug she knew that there could be no more pleasure and liberty for her she would be missed looked for and found i must go home she cried have you finished it very nearly yes she ran and looked over his shoulder breathless with astonishment at what she saw upon the gray paper a little girl in a very short faded gown and long red stockings also much faded a very slender figure a little round face a delicate little nose two grey bright eyes that looked out into the world with a startled expression a short upper lip a round chin a very fair skin and shining reddish brown hair which waved long and silky about the narrow childish shoulders and was tied at the back of the head with the blue ribbon 
he had unfastened the sketch from the portfolio and she held it in her hands examining it narrowly is it like she asked and then looking down at herself she added the gown is like and the stockings are like but the face is that like she looked up at him eagerly i cannot do it any better he replied rather ambiguously oh you must not be vexed she made haste to say i only wanted to know if how can i tell if i well it looks too pretty to me this picture of yours he gave her a comical side glance every artist must flatter a little if he wishes to please a lady was his reply and you give me the picture she asked shyly after a little pause why you ordered it he replied i i thank you she stammered then turned away and would have run off but he was by no means inclined to let her off so easily and my pay he cried catching her in his arms and clasping her so tightly that her little feet were lifted off the daisy sprinkled turf traitress he exclaimed reproachfully she blushed scarlet although she was but just 9 years old she put her arm around his neck and kissed him directly upon the mouth his lips were still the lips of a girl then she walked away but she could not hasten from the spot something seemed to stay her steps she paused and looked back the lad was busied with packing up his small belongings all the gaiety had vanished from his face he looked pale and sad again with her heart swelling with pity she ran back to him you come for your basket he said good-naturedly holding it out to her no it isn't that she replied shaking her head and she put down the basket on a willow stump and came close up to him in some surprise he smiled down at her something else to ask my little princess no that is she plucked him by the sleeve see here she began confused and yet coaxingly do not be vexed only i thought just now how bad it would be if before you get home you should be treated by somebody else as that man treated you she pointed to the castle and then and then oh i know so well how dreadful it is to have no money i please take the gilders when you are a great artist you can give them back to me and before he knew what she was doing she had slipped the portmoney into his coat pocket the tears stood in his eyes he put his arm around her and looked at her as if to learn her face by heart it might be he muttered perhaps you will bring me luck i may still come to be something and if you then should be as dear and pretty as you are now he kissed her upon both eyes rika a shrill voice called from a distance is that your name he asked yes and what is your last name my stepfather's is strenchiski i do not know mine rika the shrill tones sounded near and what is your name she asked him before he could reply the fluttering skirts of the english governess came in sight suddenly aroused to a consciousness of her neglected duties she was looking along the road for her charge the little girl clasped her picture close and fled 
when she reached the house she ran upstairs to put her precious portrait safely away and then she allowed a clean apron to be put on over her faded frock by the agitated englishwoman whose name was in fact sophie lane and who had been born in hamburg of honest german parents after which she presented herself in the dining room with an assured air as if unconscious of the slightest wrong doing her stepfather received her with a stern reproof and instantly inquired where she had been she replied curtly to the village upon which he read her a tremendous lecture upon the enormity of idly wandering about the country addressing at the same time a few annihilating remarks to the englishwoman from hamburg he had exchanged his bright blue morning coat for a light summer suit in which he presented a much better appearance but he was no more pleasing to his stepdaughter in his light brown costume than in the blue coat with red facings she paid very little attention to his discourse but quietly went on eating miss sophie however shed tears the baron von strensky impressed her greatly no more she honored him as a being from a higher sphere he was popular with women of all ranks from the lowest to the highest why it would be difficult to tell he possessed a certain amount of personal magnetism but it had no effect upon his stepdaughter they were extraordinarily antipathetic stanchesky and his clear-eyed little stepdaughter what she took exception to in him was of so complex and delicate a nature as to defy explanation in words what annoyed him in her was principally the fact that in spite of her tender age she saw through him was quite free of all illusions with regard to him it always increases our regard for our neighbor if he will but view us with flattering eyes some few illusions in our behalf we require from those around us they are absolutely necessary to the pleasure of daily intercourse but the demands of her von strensky in this respect were beyond all reason while his stepdaughter's capacity to comply with them was unusually limited dinner progressed as usual the gentlemen continued to admonish miss sophie to weep and little rika to maintain strict silence until dessert when her von strensky for whom eating was one of the most important occupations in life inquired after an almond cake of which as he assured the servant five pieces had been left from breakfast yes five pieces and a little broken one he had counted them the servant repaired to the kitchen for information the cook could give none save that she herself had put the cake away in the pantry whence it had vanished without a trace since the morning herfan stanchesky was indignant he accused every servant in the establishment of the theft from the foremost of those employed in the house to the lowest stable boy and talked of having bars put up at the windows little rika let him give full sweep to his anger she fairly gloated over his irritation at last she remarked indifferently what would be the use of bars on the windows when anyone can walk in at the door it is never locked silence what do you know about it thundered her stepfather oh i know all about it the child quietly replied and i know what became of the cake what i took it 
I carried it out to the painter whom you turned out of the house. Harfan Strenchesky's eyebrows were lifted to a startling extent at this confession. You ran after that house painter fellow down the road? He asked with a gasp at each word. Yes, the child replied composedly. And he was not a house painter fellow, but a young artist. Although I should have run after him all the same if he had been a house painter fellow. Indeed, and why? He asked with a sneer. She looked him full in the face. Why? Because you treated him so badly and I was sorry for him. For a moment, he was speechless. Then he arose, seized the child by the arm and thrust her out of the door. Without making the least resistance, carelessly humming to herself, she ran up the staircase, a staircase that turned an abrupt corner and the worn steps of which exhaled an odour of damp decay, whilst Stanchelsky turned to the Englishwoman from Hamburg and groaned, My stepdaughter is a positive torment. I am firmly persuaded that she will end at the galleys. The galleys were tolerably far removed from the sphere of the Austrian penal code, but Harfan Stranchesky had a predilection for what was foreign and had recently read a novel in which the galleys played a prominent part. Meanwhile, little Erika had betaken herself to the drawing room, a spacious but by no means gorgeous apartment the furniture of which consisted principally of bookcases and a piano. She seated herself at this piano and instantly became absorbed in the study of one of Mozart's sonatas with which she intended to celebrate her mother's return. She had a decided talent for music. Her slender little fingers moved with incredible ease over the keys and her cheeks, usually rather pale, flushed with enthusiasm. It was going very well. She stretched out her foot to touch the pedal, an act which in her opinion lent the crowning glory to her musical performance, when suddenly she became aware of a kind of uproar that seemed to fill the house. Dogs barked. Servants hurried to and fro. A carriage drove up and stopped before the castle door. Frau von Stanchesky had returned unexpectedly. The child hurried downstairs, just in time to see Stanchesky take his wife from the carriage. They kissed each other like lovers, which seemed to produce a disagreeable impression upon the little girl. Moreover, it occurred to her that she did not know whether she might venture forward under existing circumstances. Then she heard her mother say, And where is Rika? Without awaiting her stepfather's reply, she rushed into her mother's arms. You look finely, darling, the mother exclaimed, patting her little daughter's cheeks. Have you been a good girl? Rika made no reply. Frau von Stranchesky's face took on a sad, troubled expression. Stranchesky frowned and shrugged his shoulders. His wife looked from him to the child, who had taken her hand and was about to kiss it. What has she been doing now? She asked, turning to her husband. Not to speak of her behavior towards myself, behavior that is perfectly unwarrantable, I repeat, unwarrantable, said Stranchesky. Not to speak of that. The girl has again so far forgotten herself, as well, I will tell you about it by and by. 
Tell now, the child exclaimed. I would rather you would tell now. Hush, Miss Impertinence, Strachinsky ordered her. Then turning to his wife, he asked, Do you bring good news? Is your uncle willing? Friend von Strachinsky shook her head sadly. Unfortunately, no, not quite, she murmured. But he was very kind. He was enchanted with Bobby. Bobby was Rika's stepbrother, whom the poor mother had carried with her upon her distressing journey, perhaps as some consolation for herself, perhaps to soften the hearts of her relatives. He did indeed seem admirably adapted to this latter purpose, for he was a charming little fellow with a lovely pink and white face crowned by brown curls and plump bare arms. His hands at present were filled with toys which he carried to his sister to console her, since he instantly perceived that she was in disgrace. I cannot understand that, Strachensky murmured. I should have credited Uncle Nick with a more generous spirit. And he looked sternly at his wife as if she were responsible for the ill success of her mission. She laid her hand gently on his arm and said, You are an incorrigible idealist, my poor Nello. You judge all men by yourself. And Stancheski passed his hand over his eyes and sighed forth sentimentally. Yes, I am an idealist, an incorrigible idealist, a perfect Don Cojito. The rest of the afternoon was passed by the pair in the large drawing room, trying to obtain some clear understanding of the state of Stancheski's financial affairs, a very difficult task. She, pencil in hand, did the reckoning. He paced the room to and fro with a tragic air and smoked cigarettes. From time to time he uttered some effective sentence such as I am unfit for this word or of course a Marquis Posa like myself. She sat quietly contemplating the figures with which the sheet before her was filled. Her face grew sad while her husband's on the contrary brightened. Since he was succeeding in casting all his cares upon her shoulders, he felt quite cheerful. I never had the least idea of this 10,000 guilders which you tell me you owe, the tortured woman exclaimed in a sudden access of anger. No, her husband rejoined with easy assurance. I surely wrote you about it. Or could the trifle have slipped my memory? Yes, now I remember you were with the children at Johannesburg. Lowy came and pestered me with its being such a splendid chance, told me I had no right to hold back, and so I bought a hundred shares of Schoenfeld. Good heavens, what do I understand of business? How is such knowledge possible for a gentleman? In the army, one never learns anything of the kind. And what can one do save follow advice? I trust others far too readily. You have always told me so. It is natural result of the magnanimity of my nature. I blame myself for it. I am an Egmont, a perfect Egmont, poor Egmont. There is nothing left for me but to sigh with him. Ah, orange, orange. Stancheski imagined that his confession, uttered with an indescribably tragic emphasis, would quite reconcile his wife to his unfortunate speculation. But to his great surprise, the anticipated result did not ensue. Frau von Strancheski pushed her thick dark hair back from her temples and exclaimed, I cannot understand you. 
you promised me so faithfully not to speculate in stocks again but my dear emma the opportunity seemed to me so brilliant a one that i should have thought myself a very scoundrel not to try at least and you see the result when a man acts consciously and with the best intentions he should not be reproached even though his efforts result in failure he said pompously no my dear emma not a word do not speak now you will only be sorry for it by and by but emma stranchesky was not on this occasion to be thus silenced she was indignant and almost in despair you have always acted with the best intentions she exclaimed horus with agitation and the result of your good intentions will be to beggar my children can you take it ill if i withhold from you my few farthings that there may be some provision for the children in the future yogelo fanstrensky looked her over from head to foot your few farthings he said with annihilating severity what indelicacy well i shall steer my course accordingly do as you choose in future i have nothing more to say and with head haughtily erect cavalier and martyr every inch of him he stalked from the room she looked after him she had gone too far again her impulsiveness had led her astray her heart throbbed she felt sore with agitation shame and remorse when erica towards evening was playing hide and seek with her little brother in the garden she saw her mother and her stepfather strolling affectionately along the gravel path between the hawthorn bushes he was already rather bald his limbs were loosely knit he wore full whiskers and there was a languishing glance in his eyes but he was still handsome in spite of a dissipated air she was tall slender and erect with large dark eyes and a pale noble countenance that could never however have been beautiful they walked close together and to a casual observer presented an ideal picture of happy wedded life and yet when one observed more narrowly his arm was thrown around her shoulder and he leaned upon her instead of sporting her the swing of his heavy frame the languishing sentimental expression of his face everything about him bespoke a self-satisfied luxurious temperament while she in her eyes there was a restless anxiety and her figure looked as though it were slowly being bowed to the ground by a burden which she was either unable or afraid to shake off she walked with the patiently regular step beneath her heavy load suddenly she seemed uneasy she shivered what is it darling stancheski asked her clinging still closer to her nothing she murmured nothing and walked on they were passing the spot where the little brother and sister were playing and in the gathering twilight emma stretchesky became aware of a pair of clear dark brown childish eyes that seemed to ask how can she love that man those childish eyes were positively uncanny the child's dislike dated from far in the past it was in fact the first clearly formulated emotion of her little heart during the first years of her second marriage the mother prompted by an exaggerated tenderness had concealed from her little daughter as long as possible the fact that strachinsky was not her own father the child had learned the truth by accident when she rushed to her mother to have what she had heard confirmed 
she was received with the tenderest caresses as though she were to be consoled for a great grief while she was entreated not to be sad and was told that papa was far too good and kind to make any difference between herself and his own children that he loved her dearly etc the mother's caresses were highly prized by the child all the more that they were rather rare but on this occasion she could not even seem to enjoy them since she could not endure to be pitied and soothed for what brought her in reality intense relief her mother perceived this and it angered her although at the same time the child's evident though silent dislike made a deep impression upon her perhaps the consciousness of its existence in so frank and childish a mind first gave occasion to distress of the terrible infatuation to which the gifted woman's entire existence had fallen a sacrifice frau von strenschiski was wont to go herself every evening to see that all was as it should be in the large airy apartment where both the children slept she hovered noiselessly from one bed to the other signing the cross upon the brow of each an old-fashioned custom to which she still clung although she had long since adopted a very philosophical views with regard to religion and giving each sleeping child a tender good-night kiss the evening after her return she went to the nursery at the usual hour but lingered only by the crib of the sleeping boy passing her daughter's bed with averted face rika sat up and looked after her her mother had reached the door without once looking back this the child could not endure she sprang out of bed ran to her mother and seized her by her skirt mother mother she cried in a frenzy you will not go without bidding me good night let go of my gown frau von strenschiski replied in a cold voice which nevertheless trembled with emotion but what have i done mother the child cried clinging to her passionately can you ask her mother rejoined sternly why should i not ask how should i know what he has told you i was not by when he accused me erica is that the way to speak of your father her mother said angrily the little girl frowned he is not my father she declared defiantly frau von strenzinski sighed your ingratitude is shocking she exclaimed and then controlling herself with an effort she added but that i cannot alter you are an unnatural hard-hearted stubborn child i cannot soften your heart but i can insist that you conduct yourself with propriety and i forbid you once for all to run after vagabonds in the street and now go to bed i will not go to bed until you bid me good night cried the child she stood there with naked little feet in her white nightgown over which her long reddish brown hair hung down and i was not so naughty as you think you ought not to condemn me without giving me time to defend myself the child was so desperately reasonable her mother could not think her wrong in spite of her momentary anger she paused an idea evidently occurred to the little girl only wait one minute she exclaimed as she flew across the room to a drawer where she kept her toys and returning with her protege's watercolor sketch held it up triumphantly before her mother's eyes look at that she cried involuntarily emma looked 
Where did that come from? She exclaimed, forgetting her vexation in freshly aroused interest. Do you know who it is? asked Erika, stretching her slender neck out of the embroidered ruffle of her nightgown. Of course, it is your picture. It is charming. Who did it? The vagabond whom I ran after, the house painter fellow. Erika replied, at least you can see he was not that, but a young artist. Her mother was silent. Ah, if you had only been at home. The child's bare feet were growing colder and her cheeks hotter with excitement. You would have done just as I did. If you had only seen him. He was very handsome and so pale and thin and weary with hunger. Why, I could have knocked him down. And he never begged. He was too proud. Only held out the portfolio to Papa and his hand trembled. Suddenly, the excitable temperament which the girl had inherited from her mother asserted itself and she began to sob, her whole childish frame quivering with emotion. And Papa turned him out of doors and told the cook to give him two critters. He threw them away and then I ran after him. Frau von Stransinski had grown very pale. The child's agitated story had evidently made an impression upon her. But she did her best to preserve a severe demeanor. But it is very improper to run after strangers in the street. You are too old. Erika hung her head ashamed. But I should not have done it if Papa had not abused him. She declared by way of excuse. I did out of pity for him. Pity is a very poor counselor. Her mother said these words with an emphasis which Erika never forgot and which was to echo in her soul years afterwards. Then she extricated herself from the child's embrace and left the room, closing the door behind her. A few minutes afterwards, she reopened the door. Little Erika was still standing where she had left her. Go to bed, said her mother, in a far more gentle tone, stooping down to kiss her and be a better girl another time. The child clasped her slender little arms tightly about her mother's neck in a strangling embrace, crying, Oh, mother, mother, you do love me still. The pale woman did not answer the question, save by a kiss. She waited until the little girl had crept back to bed and then tucked in the coverlet about her shoulders and once more left the room. Erika, precautious child that she was, was a prey to emotions of a very mingled character. She had won a great victory over her stepfather. Of this she was well aware. But then she had grieved her mother sorely. All at once she was seized with profound remorse in recalling today's stroke of genius. Beneath her mother's severity, she had been sure of having right on her side. Now a great uncertainty possessed her. It is very improper to run after strangers in the street. You are too old. She repeated meekly, and she grew hot. What would my mother think if she knew that I had kissed him? In the midst of her distress, she was overpowered by intense fatigue. Her eyelids drooped above her eyes, and with her nightly prayer still on her lips, she fell asleep. Emma von Stransinski did not sleep. She sat in the bare room adjoining the nursery the room where she taught Erika her lessons. 
she wrote two very difficult letters to her husband's creditors and then proceeded to sue upon a gown for her daughter she was proud of the child's beauty as only the mother can be who has all her life long been conscious of being obliged to forego the gift of beauty for herself she loved her daughter idolatrously the daughter whom she often treated with the severity verging upon injustice and whom she sometimes avoided for days because the glance of those clear eyes troubled her the windows of the room were open and looked out upon the road the fragrance of ripened grain was wafted in from the earth outside resting from its summer fruitfulness and saturated with the august sunshine a song floated up through the silent night the reapers were working by moonlight the low murmur of the brook accompanied the song and now and then could be heard the soft swish of the grain falling beneath the scythe a cricket chirped emma dropped her hands in her lap and gazed into vacancy suddenly she started a step approached the door of the room and stancheski smiling sentimentally entered emma he said tenderly have you written to franks and ziegler yes she replied and her voice sounded hoarse there lie the letters read them and see if they are what you wish not at all her husband exclaimed gaily i have implicit confidence in your tact hum the perusal of such letters is a sorry amusement do you suppose that it was a pleasure to write them emma asked with some bitterness stancheski immediately assumed an injured air you are irritable again one cannot venture upon the slightest jest with you do you suppose that i enjoy being forced to ask you to write the letters good heavens it is hard enough but circumstances will have it so he passed his hand over his eyes and stroked his whiskers with an air of great dignity she was silent he watched her for a while and then said that eternal sewing is very bad for you come to bed i cannot i am not sleepy she replied plying her needle and moreover i must finish this frock let me go on with it she bent over her work with the air of one determined to complete a task stancheski stood beside her for a while longer hesitating and uncertain he picked up each small article upon the table looked at it and laid it down again after the fashion of a man who does not know what to do with himself then he sighed profoundly yawned sighed again and without another word left the room with heavy lagging footsteps when he was gone she laid aside her sewing and went to the open window to breathe the fresh air the bluish moonlight shone full upon the whitewashed walls of the peasant's cots crowned with their dark clumsy thatch in the distance twinkled the little stream winding its splashing way directly across the village towards the river its banks bordered with curiously distorted willows that looked like crouching lurking gnomes and spanned by the huge useless bridge bridge willows and cots all threw pitch black shadows out into the glaring splendor of the moonlit night which was absolutely free from mist and damp beyond the village stretched fields of grain and stubble in endless perspective a surface of tarnished dull gold the song was still informing the silence at last it ceased 
and shortly afterwards heavy regular steps were heard passing along the road the reapers were going home they passed by emma's windows a little dark grey crowd of men the sights over their shoulders glimmered in the moonlight then came a couple of women bored and weary almost dropping asleep as they walked and last of all the overseer a young fellow whose hand clasped that of a girl at his side how he bent over her a low tender whispering sound reached emma's ears through the dry august air which the night had scarcely cooled she turned away frowning how happy they look and why she murmured herself suddenly she smiled bitterly had she any right to sneer thus at others she surely if ever a woman lived who had believed in love and had married for love she was that woman and whom had she loved a poor weakling who had never been worthy to unloose lechet of her shoe not only little precocious erica every sensible human being who had ever come in contact with the married pair had asked how such a union had been possible and yet it was so simple a story so simple and commonplace the story of a woman lacking beauty but gifted enthusiastic prone to romantic exaggeration whose longing for affection had wrought her ruin her parents belonged to the most ancient if not the most illustrious of the native bohemian nobility he was of doubtful descent she had always been wealthy he possessed nothing save a scheming brain and a soaring self-conceit that bore him triumphantly aloft through all the annoyances of life he was not entirely without talent had had a good education and was previous to his marriage with emma landoff neither idle nor inactive but possessed of a certain desire for culture the secret springs of which however were to be found in an eager social ambition at eighteen he entered the army too poor to join the cavalry and too arrogant to content himself among the infantry he joined yager corps he had risen to the rank of captain when he was wounded in the schleswig holstein campaign he made his wife's acquaintance in a private hospital in berlin which she had arranged in her own house for the martyrs of the aforesaid campaign she was very young very enthusiastic and a widow widow of a cold unloved northern german whom in accordance with family arrangements she had married while she was yet only a visionary child the memory of her formal marriage inspired her with horror before meeting stancheski she had given scope to her romantic tendencies by all sorts of exaggerated charitable schemes and by a fanatical devotion to art and poetry she had long been convinced that her thirst for affection could never be satisfied no one had ever shown her any passionate devotion and conscious of her lack of beauty she had sadly resigned herself to swell the ranks of those women whom reason might prompt a suitor to woo but who could never hope to be wooed in defiance of reason the pole had an easy task that he was handsome even his enemies could not deny and he knew how to make the most of his personal advantages a century earlier he might have been taken for a ponitowski with the direct claim to the throne of poland his uniform was very becoming and a wounded soldier is always interesting 
as soon as he divined the young widow's weakness he wooed her with verses with passionate declarations of love poor emma her thirsty heart thrilled with the sudden bursting into bloom of its spring so long delayed her parents who might have warned her of what she was bringing upon herself were dead she paid no heed to her mother-in-law who sternly opposed her second marriage when emma with burning cheeks and trembling to her fingertips with emotion repeated to her the poles exaggerated expressions of devotion the elder woman rejoined coldly and you believe the coxcomb the words were to emma like the sting from a whiplash and why should i not believe him she asked sharply because perhaps you think me incapable of inspiring a man with affection nonsense replied the sensible mother-in-law you could inspire affection in any honest man with the heart in his bosom but not in that shallow pole that second-rate dandy perhaps you think him an adventurer who woos me for the sake of my money emma exclaimed indignantly no i think him a superficial man who flattered by having made an impression upon a woman of rank is trying to better his condition adventurer nonsense he has not wit enough an opportunity offers itself and he embraces it voila tout he is not to blame but his suit is unworthy of you and a marriage with him would be a misfortune for you apart from the fact that you would disgrace your family by it when a patient is to be persuaded to take a dose of medicine it ought not to be offered him in an unattractive shape the old lady's representations were correct but they were humiliating emma turned away stubborn and indignant and a month afterwards married stanchinsky and parted from her mother-in-law forever eight years had passed since then first came a few months during which emma reveled in the sensation of loving and being loved and then well the bliss was still there but a slight shadow had fallen upon it dimming it chilling it a gnawing uneasiness in the midst of which memory would suddenly suggest the sensible mother-in-law's unsparing predictions his marriage put an end to all exertion on stanchisky's part it had at a single stroke as it were lifted him so far above all for which his ambition had thirsted that he had nothing left to desire save to enjoy life in distinguished society as far as was possible with his wife's money he purchased an estate in bohemia where the soil was the poorest so great in extent that it made a show in the map of the country and developed a brilliant talent for hospitality all the landowners in the vicinity all the cavalry officers from the nearest garrison were habitues of lazno as the estate was called with his wife's unceasing attentions stanchisky's self-importance increased and his regard for her declined she existed simply to ensure his comfort for nothing else the household was turned topsy-turvy when the master's guests appeared whether invited or unannounced stretchinsky entertained them with exquisite suppers at which champagne flowed freely but at which his wife did not appear after supper cards were produced and it was frequently four in the morning before the gentlemen were heard driving away from the castle sometimes they remained until the next night 
But the day came when Lesno ceased to be a branch of the military casino at K. The life there suddenly became very quiet and various disagreeable facts came to light which had been disregarded in the whirl of gaiety. Then first little Erika saw her mother, pencil in hand, patiently adding up her husband's debts while Stranchiski, his hands clasped behind him and a cigarette between his teeth, paced the room dictating amounts to her. In addition to losses at play and in unfortunate speculations, he had magnanimously put his name to various notes of his distinguished friends. Emma did not even frown but exerted herself in every way, sold her trinkets and almost every valuable piece of furniture that her husband might meet his liabilities, treating him all the while with the forbearance traditional in model wives in order to save him from any depressing consciousness of his position. Was he conscious of it? If he were, he was entirely successful in concealing any consequent depression. The morning after the first painful revelation of his indebtedness, he skipped the gayest air imaginable into the dining room, where the family were already assembled at the breakfast table and exhorted all present to economize, and especially not to put too much butter on their bread. Afterwards, discoursing wittily upon poverty and magnanimity, to lighten his burden, perhaps to disguise his insensibility from her own heart, Emma persuaded him that his course had been the result solely of warm-hearted imprudence and an exaggerated nobility of character. This view of the case was eagerly adopted by his vanity. He paraded his martyr's nimbus and with the self-satisfied sigh styled himself a Don Cojito. Nothing could really be farther from Don Cojito's idealistic and unselfish craze than his utter egotism in its thin veil of sentimentality. And as for his martyrdom, it was easily seen through. None of the misfortunes brought upon himself by himself did he ever allow to affect his existence. He possessed a kind of cunning intelligence that never forsook him and that enabled him in the midst of ruin to ensure his own personal ease. But how could Emma have borne at that comparatively early period to see him as he really was? She seized upon every excuse for him. She patched up her damaged illusions. She would support, restrain him, develop all that was really noble in him. In her zealous ambition to make his home so delightful that he would never look for entertainment elsewhere, she exerted herself to the utmost, pandered to his love of eating, even cooked herself when they were no longer able to bear the expense of such a cook as he had been accustomed to, tried to conform her intellectual interests to his lack of any such, in short, did everything to strengthen the tie between herself and him. She succeeded completely. She made the tie so strong that no loosening of it was possible. She tried to withdraw him from all outside influences to win him wholly to herself and she succeeded. Her presence, her tenderness became an absolute necessity of existence to him. He had never so adored her even during their honeymoon. Good heavens! Now she would have given everything in the world for any breach between them that could be widened beyond all possibility of healing. It was too late. 
she must drag on the burden with which she had laden herself it was her duty she could not sink beneath it she had no right to but in spite of all her efforts her nerves at length gave way she became irritable at times she grieved over the change which she saw in him at other times the thought would suggest itself that this change was merely superficial that he had never really been any other than at present then her blood would seem to run cold she could have screamed no no she would not see there is nothing sadder in this world than the dutiful tortured life of a woman with the husband whom she has ceased to love end of chapter 1